Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation co-hosted by Lenya Wilson and myself, Alexandra Detalia. Listen to our conversations while we discuss race and womanhood at the hearth level. I did not intend to sit here and do the interview. I was going to go home. But then I'm like, wait a minute, I just need to chill. And I'm literally like where the watch yes! section is. Like, this is in Zurich. This yes. is in Zurich, right? This is a Louis store. And this is a really, you see, Bulgari. Bulgari. Yeah. Is this in Zurich? Right this is in Zurich, yeah. So I don't, I generally don't do this. But I was like, I need something to eat. And then I'm like, oh my God, the interview's coming. Let me just find a place. I miss walking cities like you would not believe. So this is like watching porn for me. I am so, I miss it so much. I just want to, I just want to be in a walking city. Yeah. Uh, Let me tell you something that uh, today we got notice at work that Switzerland is imposing a, like a, like the next tier of measures. So we were at work. We got an email that said basically 50% of the people can come back to work only 15% of whatever allotted that you have. But we were all together since I started. So I work in a corporate communications team. Right. And I'm the coordinator of all the people. And that's, it's like, it's like being the choreographer, but it's a little different because they don't necessarily know what I'm there to do. Some of it they do, but then a lot of it is hidden. We have David France here, who I have to um, tell everybody I went to to high school with, and I have been admiring David. I have had a crush on David basically since he was in high school. And and I don't think I told you this when I interviewed Jude, but at our 10-year reunion, I went up to you. I was a little tipsy, but I went up to you and I said, I really need to dance with you. Like, I need to say David France, and then <laughs> we danced, and I was like, and then it was like it crossed it off my bucket list, and I was like, okay, uh, I have it now. So that's that's where we are. But David is an artist, entrepreneur, and business creative, working with corporations, nonprofits, arts organizations, and individuals to push boundaries, create opportunity, and create value for communities. And he lives in Switzerland, which is a long way from South Orange, New Jersey. So we're going to have to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, definitely. All right. What is that bio, David? In general, artists push boundaries, right? But I always saw myself as working in business and working with communities and trying to get the best out of communities. And it started with my own, right, and what I saw growing up and what was possible, but I, it turned out that a lot of people couldn't see that, right? What I was seeing is not what people in general in those communities, my own starting from my family and then extending outward. So for example, everyone's born with a gift, right? And when people are working in their gift in a group, it can grow into a community, right? So like when you go to a city, there's a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, however you want to present that. And what I think is that people get so caught up, we get so caught up in what is being presented as the right way to do, to be, to exist, to interact with one another, that we miss what our true calling, we we miss knowing who we are. And that sounds a a little cliche, but it's true, right? People are distracted, right? or they are told that they are supposed to act a certain way, be a certain way, do things a certain way, it could really end up putting them on the path away from what their true gift is, right? So that's how I've seen this. I've been viewing it this way for a very long time, and now I have the words to explain it. But even as someone that's five years old, I could tell you, oh, okay, this group of people can do this, and those people can do that. because we were, you know, basically middle-class kids growing up in a suburb of New York City. Did you feel that you were being pushed onto a different path or that we all were as our generation growing up as middle-class kids in, uh, in a suburb of New York? Uh, but wait, can I take it a little bit deeper, David? So as, yes. a, as an African-American man, right, growing yeah. up in New York and when we all grew up. All right. 
there talk about that kind of pressure to be a certain way. Yes. That has a lot to do with it, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just to make it clear, I grew up, I was born in Baltimore and I was raised in Baltimore and I wouldn't say predominantly black, but, but my family, my extended family is from Maryland, right? By the time I moved to New Jersey, it was middle school. I think I was maybe 12 years old. And what I started to see or what I saw immediately was this disconnect or I wouldn't even call it a disconnect, this sort of presentation of the way black people, I guess, should be or are supposed to be that was not in alignment with who I was, right, as a person and who I thought my family was and is, even though we grew up in Baltimore, right? So people could make the argument. We grew up in similar cir- circumstances or situations, but I wouldn't necessarily say that. So by moving to New Jersey, it's opened my eyes and it was a shock to the system as to how people were processing things, mainly see how people saw themselves in their communities and outside of their communities. Right. And I think that South Orange Middle School, what was great about it was that I was able to find out more so who I was because I didn't know that I was gifted as a dancer. My older sister was the one that was dancing and she was part of a program. So there were a lot of things that our school system offered. Right. And my parents sought out the, that environment, but they had no idea to the level that I was trying to take it. <laughs> Once I started to see what was going on, do you know what I mean? Like they, I think at some point they became afraid because I took it so seriously, right? So yeah. just to let you know that I was a gymnast and I was a dancer and I did them both simultaneously. So there was a men's gymnastics team in high school. I trained for that. And then there was an overlap with dance and I competed. And then in January started going full in on dance We had a dance company, too, at the high school. So we were a huge high school. It was 2,000 strong. And I have to, like, give a little shout-out. My dad was president of the Board of Education. But it was an excellent high school that had tons of extracurricular activities. And so there was a dance company, and it was big, and it performed. I mean, did you dance outside high school, too? No, like, it was all high school. Right? I mean, I started to find... In other words, I started to find out who I really was... Maybe I wasn't ready to, 100% to know what that meant. But I started on, on my journey, on my journey, while I was in middle school. And that's where I met Alexandra. And that's how we, we started seeing certain things, I think. I think there, in the beginning, it was a little shocked. But I think as we went to high school, that's when there were certain parallels between me and other people, like yourself, uh, like other members of our class. And I could connect with them in different ways other than just from a pure uh, socioeconomic perspective. Even though I'm firmly in that, I was firmly in that camp. I mean, people couldn't say that I, Dave, you're not black. <laughs> Clearly I was, right? Clearly I was doing the that. But I just knew, it's like, why can't we be doing all this other stuff? Or why can't we be here? Or why can't we be doing this? Or why is it the same old thing? Or why, do, why are people too afraid to really express who they are, what they can do? And that, that's something that runs through every person and every community. It's true. And I do think, I mean, Lenya and I have discussed this uh, a lot, Like, but I actually, it's our, it would have been our 35th annual reunion this year. Mm-hmm. And and I think Sue actually had something in her backyard, like socially distant. But I got out the yearbook and looking at everything, I mean, it was like the high school was integrated in some ways and not in others. And it was interesting, David, that we're having this conversation. But I look back and like a lot of the pictures of you are with only black people. That's right. That's right. Now. I think there's a reason why that was. And it was because I was like, what's going on? What are we doing? I felt I can look at it now. I really can look at it now. And you can see that I was in my purpose back then. Yeah. Remember, I even made my senior year, I made T-shirts. Remember, I made some sort of sweatshirts and we called ourselves the Kahlua Crew. Yeah. I designed that. I, we did this sort of color court. 
because I was like, this is ridiculous. I think in my mind, maybe the front or the back, I said, we got to bring this up. We got to, you can't buy into everything that people are selling. You can't buy into what, what society says that you are based on whatever the, the status quo is or, and so that's been how I've been running this thing. <laughs> I've been doing this and it has been bleeding into other areas like work, right? Well, like business, yeah. like, and that's how it, that's. So you ended up going to Tulane. We, we've talked about this, like in your interview with me, Tulane, you went for, you got your JD and your MBA. Can we talk about Tulane for a minute? Because yes. New Orleans is a very interesting place for a black man. Uh-huh. So I want to hear about, I want to hear about <laughs> your experience doing, doing advanced degrees, such a place. But to be, to give it some perspective, I attended University of Pennsylvania for my undergrad. And that experience was so challenging, was so challenging in so many ways. I had no idea what I was jumping into. I would say our experience in high school was like a cakewalk compared to what I experienced at Penn. But it took me a while to get to law school and business school, and I was rejected many times from law school. I knew it was important to get into a law school for what it was that I was trying to do, which is, again, around community, because I felt like, okay, if I'm going to be this business person operating in a modern world, I need to know how that works. And not just from, okay, I know accounting and so on. I need to know what the processes are all around, like 360. So after like three, I think I applied to a lot of law schools and got rejected by all of them. And partly that was because my grades were crap when I was at Penn. I mean, like the things that I could have done in high school, I couldn't do that. To put it in perspective, when we started school, people were selling answers to tests, Xerox on red paper, right? <laughs> on the wall. Now there was a market. There was a market. Yeah. There was a market because the people had run a game on the classes, right? So they knew certain mm-hmm. classes, what they were going to teach, etc. And so we jump into this. We were not prepared. I wasn't prepared, right? And the Wharton School has an undergraduate program and it's a school within the University of Pennsylvania. And I applied to that school from the beginning and got rejected. So I thought, I, I think I saw myself as this business creative person, but I, there was no place for me because everything was straight quant, straight. So by the time I got to Tulane, that was 92, and I had to enter the business school first and then prove that I could, you know, and then I was admitted to the law school. And the law school, show, I mean, that was a whole other thing. To give you a picture of the law schools uptown, which is a very... I would say prestigious part of New Orleans. And so I was isolated from the rest of what was going on until maybe Mardi Gras. A couple times we ventured out to the quarter and to the, to the different wards, like the seventh ward. I never went to the ninth ward, but just the seventh ward <laughs> in areas that were black. No, because like, look, I was at that time, I didn't have any money to be driving around or whatever. That was not, <laughs> I didn't have, I was flat broke most of the time. I was very focused, right? I did enjoy what, what led me to the walls is when I visited, I was like, okay, I'm here. I'm going to be here, right? Because there's a large, there's a huge influence of African-American culture coming out of, you know, New Orleans. So I felt right at home and yeah, I still, I, when I graduated eventually in 99. So I started in 92 and I ended up finishing in 99. That was another story. But I I started going back like every two years or so. Right. And I've invested in the the city and and et cetera. I'm there. Even if I'm here physically, I'm I'm still mentally (laughs) in New Orleans. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, more so than Baltimore. I mean, when I got there, I was like, okay, this is it. Yeah. Right. But I knew that I couldn't work there for reasons that we can talk about later. I knew I had to go to a place that was neutral and that could not embrace me. That's too strong of a word, but at least say, hey, look, you, you got this and this. We'll bring you in. Right. Right. And well, that was not happening in the United States. That was so not happening. So then how did that transition from New Orleans uh-huh. to Europe? 
and where okay. there's stops in between. I want to know. Yeah, that. yeah, it's like it's up and down. And this is the thing. This is how I got to uh, Switzerland. But the short story or the short end of it is when I graduated from Tulane, and that was in '99. I moved back to New York because I was there, right? So in '95, I flunked out of law school for reasons. That's another thing. But I was working for I was working for record companies. Um, I was working for record companies while I was in law school. So well, I worked for Virgin. You concentrating as a law professor, I'll tell you, because yeah. you weren't focused well, on law school. It was just a means no. to your end. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it was, I just like being around the people. Yeah. Right? So I was like, oh, I'm in law school. So I wasn't really focusing. I was focusing on what I was going to do after I get out. Right? So I flunked out. And then I said, okay, I'll go to New York for three years. And then I'll come back. Right? Mm-hmm. And finish the degree. No one thought I was going to finish the degree. I, I think working for media companies, I did all kinds of stuff. 99, I went back. Uh, 98, I went back. Finished in 99. And then shortly thereafter, I met somebody who was then who would become my what we call uh, they call partner, but it was a, a man that was from Switzerland who was living in the United States. And when I met him, I was in East Village, and I said, "Okay," I said, "I'm going to know that guy for a long time." I just knew that I knew that I was going to know this person for a long time, right? So I didn't become involved with the person with this guy. Until after nine, right before nine eleven, and then nine eleven took everything in a whole other direction, right? Because the bridges started shutting down, and I was in Brooklyn, but I actually tried to go to work, and that's how it started. Like so, I met this person who eventually I would have a relationship with, and we were the same age, but he was from the Basel area. After nine eleven, a couple of years afterwards, he was like, "Hey, I want to go." back to Switzerland. And I was like, okay. And then I said, okay, at 39, 40, let's see if I can do that. Right. right. I mean, and I made the jump and it was very difficult for a variety of reasons because not just, okay, I'm moving to another country, but I was being challenged. My whole identity was being challenged. So all that stuff that I just told you about in the beginning, <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm going into a totally different direction. Yeah. <laughs> in more than one way. How is this going to work out for me? Right. And what am I going to do? Yeah. And quite frankly, it really was the only, as I, I see my, see that situation, it was really the only option that I had because I still wasn't getting jobs. Right. I still was not, I was in New York and not really employed, had all of these fancy degrees and not employed. But was that because, before we talk about Switzerland, was that because, and this is a Gen X thing, right, that we've yes. talked about, is that a yeah. little because, though, you had an image in mind of what kind of work you really wanted to do, and mm-hmm. the status quo was saying there are no jobs that fit that? Yeah, partly, yeah, sure. I think that you're right. And it is a Gen X thing because... It, it, it's a generational thing, but it, embedded in that is the racial component. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Embedded in it is the racial component. So you can't remove it. And I think what makes Gen X such a great generation is that it's people like yourself that recognize that we were in a different club, right? Like things weren't necessarily going for white folks either, yeah. right? Yeah. In, in, in Gen X. Right, because they're like, wait a minute, you guys said we were going to get this and this. We take these loans out for school, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys, let us astray. You guys aren't bringing. You guys aren't bringing us in. You're not well, bringing. Did us you in. really feel like in New York that you were? I mean, I'm sure this is true. It isn't a challenge, but I mean, did uh-huh. you really feel that race was in play in New York as you were trying to get jobs? Absolutely. I mean, God, I'm laughing because it's like, I could give you story after you want, story. I mean, but like, this is what story. it is. Like, tell the story because yeah. there are so many people who will say, come on now, it was New York. It's That's the problem is that people think on both coasts that they're, uh-huh. it's solved and that the problems are only like in the middle yeah. of the country. Yeah. No, I think part of it was, okay, there's an old, like, let me try to summarize it this way. All those guys that are now getting busted for um, sexual harassment are very high profile mm-hmm. yeah. white men of a certain age, right? I think in their era, that was, 
they were not, they had a certain way of being, doing, and seeing the world. And they happened to have a stranglehold on, I'd say, a, a large percentage of, they were the ruling class. Yeah. Generationally, they were the ruling class, right? So here we come, like ragtag, <laughs> different ethnic groups, different genders, different everything smashed together. We're the first wave, I think, of that integration. And they're looking at us like, what? Like, they're, like our vibe is so different from their vibe. And a lot of the times, a lot of the stories that you hear about the women that were getting sexually harassed, a lot of them were from our generation. Yeah, I, I would say most of them, if not all of them, are from our generation. So I'm, yeah, I, I, I mean, so when the story started coming out, or when you open the pages of the magazines and you see all the starlets who were sexually harassed, they're all around our age. Yeah, all around their age. So it's not just, it's not just a racial thing. I think it's a generational thing in the way that we are looking at the world, and we may be the first wave of. I wouldn't say that we're social justice warriors in the way that the, 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 the SWJs are being presented now, but we were definitely the, the people in, in the front, on the front lines of that type of thinking, I would say. Did you ever have to deal in New York, though, like as people treating you as like an angry black man? No, I think, I mean, I have so many work stories. I mean, even today I was thinking, I feel like I'm in an episode of uh, Barney Miller, the cop yeah, show I love, with I all to... the crazy cops. I mean, when you're in a work environment, such extremes, and it, it's just interesting that people feel, and this is the way work works, that when they come to work, they can just show their asses, right? <laughs> they, just say, they just do whatever they want to do. And you're like, oh, right? But I think, I, I remember I, I, had, I worked with a lot of temporary agencies where I would know just how to present my CD, addresses. I wouldn't even use my address. I would use other people's addresses to get jobs. You know, even with this law legal background, I'm like, if I put my address where I live now, I'm not getting. I'm not even getting called for temporary job. Yeah, for a temp job. Okay, wow. it's just interesting. I think. Yeah, there are there are reasons specifically because I'm black. And I think other things, too. I can't just say, okay, black man, boom, right? It's how people perceive me right? as well. And that means build. That means coloring, disposition. And so now I feel like the race is one aspect. It's not everything. It's the total sum. So <laughs> to put it even in, in, in a different way, there's a young African, South African woman at work <laughs> And I was telling her, she goes, you, she is asking the same questions that you guys are asking. And I was like, yeah, race is a big deal. And I said, now I don't blame the whole country for it, right? I just tell people what happened to me. I'm responsible for, ha I, I can be responsible for what happened to me. Right. And I can tell people what happened to me. And am I going to put the entire country, the United States, hold it all of it's responsible for why I didn't become what I wanted to become when I was there. No, I'm not going to do that. Because it could be a whole host of things now that I was unaware of when I was coming up as a young person. Yeah. But that's a healthy Does that make sense? Yeah. That's a way to stay healthy and stay sane. Oh. Otherwise, like, how do you move forward with your own dreams? I mean, it's a healthier way to be. You can be aware and not blame. I don't mean to be so woo-woo, but it's like a way to stay, like, remain true to yourself in, in that sense. The South African woman asked me, like, oh, you, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I believe I know. But it was funny thing, I was eating a tuna sandwich. It was very funny. Even when I'm sitting there in the cafeteria being work, and I'm in it, and I'm like, okay, here, this is the way it is. And I'm eating my sandwich. And a South African woman comes up to me and sits herself right across from me and starts asking me questions. So when she asks, do you know Jesus? You should be, up. yeah, I know him. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I can sit here and tell you. I'm telling you now. So in other words, there is a spiritual 
component and it is woo woo. Right. right. It is woo-woo. Like the, my, um, how I'm getting to where what we're describing now has to do with being inward and looking inward and thinking about what, how are you living your true life? Are you living the way that God designed you to live? Are you doing the things that you can do versus what you think you should be doing because society says, okay, that's what you should be doing. Yeah. Right. So that's how that comes in, into play. Now you're in Basel. Right. Yeah. You got there. Tell us about what that was like, moving there, acclimating mm. yourself. I was in Basel. I was the only Black person there almost all the time. That's on right. On the street. Well, I realized I had to get, I had to change my attitude if I was going to make it. And I'm not saying it like, like we as Black people have an attitude, but on certain things, of course we do, right? So I couldn't bring whatever baggage I had from the United States to Basel. I had to literally wipe that slate clean, at least when I'm there, in order to function. Now, that didn't happen overnight because I had triggers every day. I was, tri- I was being triggered, right? And people have no idea. They don't have any reference to what's going on in the United States. Yeah. So I, it was almost like I had to say, okay. I wouldn't say swallow my pride, but I had to get real about the situation. And I had to become even more, how do you say, I had to become a fair player, if that makes sense, right? I had to treat every person with respect and be humble because I'm on somebody else's soil. I'm a guest in someone else's house. And that's just another way of how I started to live my life as I'm a guest in someone else's house, even when I'm in the United States. Wow. Even when I'm in the United States. So I knew that I had to start training myself to respond differently, to act differently. You know, I'm still the same person, the same core person, but I was in a different environment. I couldn't evaluate people on just the same black and white. Even the words black and white in Switzerland don't mean the same as they do in the United States. What do you mean by that? You know, because that's not... the, The history that we have in the States does not exist here. There's still racial things that happen, but say he's black and she's white. I mean, that's, it just does not have the same kind of vibe as it does in the United States. Like it's almost, we perfected the whole, we perfected that, you know, we we, we perfected it. And it runs through all of our our society here. That's not something that people are dealing with on a day to day. There's no Southern, there's no Southern, there are no, there's no like Alabama, there's no Louisiana, there's no Georgia, right? There's no Texas. So what you're talking about is that overt hate black racism, right? But there is, would you say, so because I lived in Australia where there isn't that as well, Mm -hmm. but there was a, there was like a curiosity, I would say there was like a subtle racism masked in curiosity, Mm-hmm. Um, that necessarily that wouldn't necessarily be in your face, and that you wouldn't kind of grasp right away. But as you walk through your everyday life, you kind of realize, oh, they're just kind of subtly throwing me shade. Look, I, I'll put it this way: I could barely get a job in New York City, right? So I come here, and within three years, like I had to learn the language, whatever. I got a job, right? Now they were doing little weird things to like not they weren't hooking me up, like, and, but because the of the Swiss law there were certain things that were mandated. So they couldn't like get rid of me in two weeks, flat, like in the United States. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm a couple steps up now, right? Because in New York, I, could, <laughs> I was getting, you know, axed quickly. So in other words, Switzerland provided me with stability that I had not had in my life in years. When I say years, I'd say, I mean, I, I moved there when I was 39, 40. Wow. So there was no stability. I think from middle school, when my parents started moving, zero stability. I get to Switzerland, I was like, Dave, you better get with this program. (laughs) You better get with this program and you better get with it quickly. So I had no time to process whether somebody was going to, you know, throw shade or whatever. It was like, all right, I have to get to work. I have to start to do the things that I I thought, I felt that I was meant to do in the United States. So I would have been doing similar work, I believe, eventually in the United States. 
but that beginning of moving to New York and having people like be open to me and working for their companies, that was clearly not happening. And it wasn't happening for a lot of us. You know, so I, I realize that now and I realize that it is partially generational. Sure, but I'm sure I'm part of it is race. I mean, I see that yeah. race still is a component. Race and culture is still a component for my law students. Now in 2020. Now in 2020. Like, and I really do agree that like getting a JD, what I tell, like even though I, I also don't practice, I really knew in my second year of law school going was a mistake. But having a JD gives you a seat at the table because you kind of understand how the country is run by lawyers and you understand it and it gives you a seat at the table, but it's kind of a fake seat at the table because you can understand everything, but you're not at the actual table. You're no, sort of exactly. like you, in the- You hit the nail on the head. Yeah, it's like reading the paper or it's like being in the state. It's like watching a baseball game, but you're in the, and you're the coach or you baseball better than the players, but yet you're in the stands. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and you take out, I mean, I have so many students and we're, Southwestern is one of the most diverse law schools mm-hmm. in the country. And so many of our first generation law students have $200,000 in student loan debt. Right. And I'm it's like, ridiculous, right? Right. And I mean, quite frankly, even now I will say, and I will say the curse, like, what the fuck are you doing? I graduated with debt and I didn't pay it off till four years ago. So... It's it's crazy, the stressor, because these students are, are, ha- are going to have it worse than we actually did, too, in the sense that how are they going to make a difference? What kind of seat are they going to get at the table with that kind of student loan? And they're going to be shuffled into work-a-day jobs and well, not be with the truths. I well, mean, that's the thing that scares me for them. This is what... And, and, and then you, I, I know you understand this as well. That's why I started to see the system that we were living in as not being true. Like being, not one, I don't want to say fake, but we were going after something that was very, and this is what, right from law school, illusory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was illusory, right? So I was like, wait a minute, I did all this stuff and I'm still not at the table. So I knew that part of the way, or I knew even more so, that part of the way is that you had to create your own way. Yeah. But the issue, another issue that I had with people in the United States, and it's the same here in Switzerland, so it's not any different, was that people are not interested in creating their own, they're not interested in doing that. They want to see that somebody else's table. Mm. They're not interested in creating their own table. And I think that part of the issue becomes okay if women are excluded women have to start creating their own table right and they can't be angry they can be angry but you know what i'm saying like it's like you just have to be realistic about what's going on in your situation right and so the same is for black folks from our generation i think they're less hungry and i think they're less creative in coming up with solutions i think a lot of us in gen x particularly the black gen xers have given up already and that is where I draw the line. I'm like, I'm not giving up. Y'all can give up. I'm not giving up. Y'all but you know, can give up. The younger generation, they are pulling it for us. The yeah, next they are, one down, they are pulling us. But the thing is that no one's really looking at it constructively or practically. Or there's no, like, I've presented myself as someone that knows how to do certain things to my own peers. They're looking at me like, whatever. <laughs> they look at me like, the way it is, right? They don't necessarily, they haven't bought into the, to what I can sell, you know, what I'm trying to sell them, which is like, okay, we all are, have knowledge now, the internet, there's information all over for free. We need to be able to come together and, and come up with some idea or some solution, right? And people are not necessarily willing and sometimes they're too afraid to buck the system or to challenge the system to even think together. And I think that has been even a bigger motivation for me to continue to do the work in communities, with individuals, in corporations. Because what I realize is that every people have 
we have similar problems and similar, we're in similar situations, right? So there are people who are mostly, everybody's afraid, right? And when you start a new job or you enter a new community, you start to see that coming out of people right away, at least I can. And maybe perhaps because I'm a dance person and I'm a very sensitive person and I can actually feel people's energy, it's more, it's clearer to me, right, that there's fear. And that's what's motivating people's behavior and how they interact at work, you know, and places where they should be, have it, have it together, but they don't. And they don't even care about, like, you know, pulling certain things in. Like, when you're at the job, in my opinion, when you're at the job, certain things have to go down a certain way, right, in order pre- to present. But I think even that, when I, to be more specific, like, just in terms of how you, your image and how you're perceived and being able to get along with people and being able to move the ball from one place to another. But sometimes people get in there and they don't even care. They're just like, they're just there and they're just doing their best yeah. under the circumstances. And that could mean they just straight up act nuts. <laughs> or do little. So with the Trump presidency, we got to just talk about it. Looking from a, like, what's it like in Switzerland as a black man looking Mm -hmm. over at your country, going through what it's been going through for even just the last year with Black Lives Matter and with the, the pandemic? I just think it's needed. I think people might, uh, I knew Trump was going to win. That should, should be the first thing. And the why? reason why, why it was you know that? Wait because I because I recognize I recognize certain behavior <laughs> because I've been living oh. with people with that behavior and oh. I've been working with people with that behavior. So I I know what the 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 good or the positive that can come out of that behavior, right? Which is certain things will happen that will change and people will start doing things in order to make it has to go negative in order for it to go positive. Okay. Right? So it has to, It ha- people have to wake up in order for them to start moving on things. And I just felt like, you know, we went to these schools and got these, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to call them fake degrees. I won't go that far. But the degrees, it was an overplay, right? It, it was an overplay. It was like, we were sold, we drank the Kool-Aid, right? We were sold... <laughs> we were sold as not a bill of goods, but it was, uh, we definitely drank the Kool-Aid. And so as a result of drinking the Kool-Aid, we believe in everything that's supposed to happen. And then all of a sudden somebody comes along and shakes the whole tree and messes it up for everyone. As somebody who is a black person thinking about Trump, I don't put that much weight in, in Trump in terms of him affecting me. I've already done that with all the other presidents. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I like it has to end for me. Like, so I came here to say, okay, who am I? What can I do? What what do I have to offer society? And I said, okay, David, you're going to have to get behind that, and that's the most important thing right now in your life. As someone who's 53 and didn't really start getting on that path until much later. Yeah, that's not to say like Trump. What I will tell you, one of the things that is key why Trump is successful is that he's speaking to the people. Now, it depends on who you call the people, who American yeah. people are, but... He's like, speaking not speaking to, the, to me. Like, he's, <laughs> he's, speaking, he's speaking to people, right? So let's say when you go to these corporations, they're not speaking to people. Government is not speaking to people. So anytime you can get to the people... Obama did it as well, right? Obama yeah. was able to do it as well. Hillary Clinton could not do it. That's true. Right? She could not do it. I, I like to look at this point in my life, and if I were telling younger people, I'd say, look, don't get caught up in the name calling of who your president is and who your president is not. Take it as an opportunity to learn who you are. And, you know, once you become familiar with who you are, you take that ball and run as fast as you can <laughs> to the finish line. Don't care. Don't be concerned. And if it means being or taking care of yourself first, ultimately means that you can take care of other people, a larger group, because you, you're healthy and you're whole, then that's the way, in my opinion, 
you want to go. You don't want to waste energy on stuff you cannot change. You want to be able, or this is the way I look at it. It's like, by being in my gift, I, that's the change that I am contributing to society. Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. We still have a responsibility to participate yeah. in the change. And as Gen Xers, mm-hmm. we, have the, we have a voice. We've been voting for a while. Like, we have a voice and, you know, we need to kind of exercise that. And, and, and as an expat, do, mm-hmm. you vote, do you vote for the American election as an expat? Yeah, I have my ballot right here. I just haven't mailed it yet. That's <laughs> my ballot in my bag. I haven't been able to mail it because they've been working me to death. <laughs> you know, like keeping me till 10 o'clock. Now, look, even in that, I'm like, okay, bless the fact that I can even say that, right? Because yeah. I'm telling you guys, in the United States, it wasn't happening for me. But now I know Jesus and everything, so I can't really, I'm not going to go on that tangent because then I'll be triggered and then this will be a whole nother thing. But I will tell you, I will tell you, my concern now is that, that I bring my gift to individuals. I work with people. I work one-on-one. And a lot of it is using movement as therapy, which I developed as a result of working with dancers and, and holding dance classes and stuff. And I'm like, wait a minute, Dave, you know how to do this. And I work with people in corporations where you go into a group of people and they're acting straight up crazy for whatever reason, bringing their issues to work and they're not working like a team, right? And part of what's going on and part of what I can see, at least as a black person looking in from outside of my own country, is that's what's going on in the country now, right? Is that people are confused, have no focus, don't believe in anything except for what they see on television, which is not... Mm-hmm. I'm overblowing it, but you know where I'm going with this. And so they're distracted and they can't find who they are. They don't have the time to look with it. Or they've made choices that are not necessarily the best choices for who they should be or who God told them they were going to be from DNA or from who anointing or whatever it is. You find a lot of lost people. The election and getting caught up in that, you know, I, I'm watching what's going on. I'm on YouTube every night. But that doesn't mean that I have to give away my power to people just because they're on TV telling me their opinion, right? So my thing is like, for people who are black Gen Xers, we're not even doing the basics, which is, okay, business, there's a contract. I have something to offer, right? And you have to accept it, right? We're not even doing, we're not even doing that, which is the basis for business, right? So it's like, I have a product. That's why, I mean, I go crazy if anybody makes new products and stuff, particularly black folks, right? And I'll call people and hound them for their products and they think that I'm crazy, but they don't understand that's, that they're creating something of value to society. And just today, I'll give an example. I'm wandering around waiting for the interview and then I a food truck and these two Mexican guys are in the food truck. And they put their big sandwich on, like right on the edge of the food truck and had avocado, chicken, onions. Like it was all kind of billowing out. And I'm I'm like, oh man. And it's a new truck. All the other trucks are are closing because it's almost the end of Swiss. It's like seven o'clock, everybody else. But they're still open. So I'm like, okay. And there's a line. So I I said, I want one of those. Well, the other people wanted falafel. So they had to wait because you had to put that in the thing. To cook. Prior, yeah. So he get, yeah, yeah, yeah. He gives my my chicken sandwich first before the people that order the falafel. And it is huge. It's much bigger portion, right, than what Swiss would normally do. So I go to the side and I start eating that thing, and it was the best, it was the best sandwich. So what they've done, Mexican guys, these two Mexican guys, the, the Arab people have come over with the what is it the falafel in the the hummus and or the falafel in the with the meat right where they shave the meat they shave up yeah the gyros gyro and that kind of thing something like that they call it k-pop here so they took a spin on the k-pop these mexican guys and it was so good i'm like all right i gotta go up there and say something these guys i gotta say something so i say in german excuse me how long have you been here 
this is really good food. He says, we have a restaurant. I'm like, what's the restaurant called? I was ready to take a picture, post that thing on social media. <laughs> These are the guys. These are the guys you need to check out, right? So that is what I like, right? When people come up with ideas and they are thinking about how to make money. And that's a basic, right? That's a basic. And people shouldn't feel shame about doing that. Which a lot of times people say, oh, I don't like talking about money and what's this and that. No, like if somebody's doing great things like that, they need to be showcased. They need to be, people need to talk about them. Shame, money, class, and race is probably like a whole nother conversation. But <laughs> for me, like I have, Lenny and I were just talking about this last week yeah. uh, amongst ourselves about class and how like... If you're old money, you never talk about money. If you're the upper aristocratic class, like even here in the States, and then it seems like dirty. And then there is shame around. I know I feel shame asking for my worth, even just for services, not even just a product. And so- Look, come on, you gotta, (laughs) this is what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. If you're gonna talk about race and you're gonna talk about gender, you gotta talk about what you just brought up. You've got to talk about it. It's interwoven into everything that we've talked about thus far, right? So that's why I've always focused on the money, not in a gross or negative way, but it's it's essential. <laughs> right. And if I'm not and if I'm not getting if I don't feel good in New York and I'm not getting paid well in New York and all these weird negative things are happening to me in New York because I can't get it together personally, and therefore it's reflecting in every aspect of my life. I got to really come. I have to have a come to Jesus moment, many come to Jesus moments, in order to say, what the heck is going on? Because I should not feel shame for charging people what I feel I'm worth. But in order to, to feel good about what I'm worth or to even get to that point, You've got to have a great environment and you've got to have great thinking. And as uh, one of these uh, televangelists say, what does she say? Joyce Meyer says, uh, stinking thinking. You do not want to have stinking thinking because ultimately it will reflect what you really think of yourself. Right. Your situation. And that's why I started to say, okay, yeah, it is a race thing. And of course there is. But then I started to question, is it linked because I've bought into what people say about us? as race like even though i'm saying a different thing or i'm talking a different preaching a different you know story or preaching a different word am i really manifesting things that reflect a negative self-worth and self-image actually right yeah it's really interesting it's do you think you'll do you think you'll ever come back to the states to live not to live, but I will be back for sure. Yeah. How often do you get back? <laughs> now, because of the of COVID, I haven't yeah. been back in like years. And don't come you know? back until we get this under control. Yeah. Yeah, we're diseased here. Where's we're, the rest of your family? We're the roaches. We're the roaches. <laughs> we, we're, my, they're all in. They're all in in the United States. But as my youngest niece is on this artist track, and she'll probably be here sooner. <laughs> She'll probably move to Europe. I don't know exactly where, but I have a sense that's what's going to happen. And just to let you guys know, I mean, there are other members of my family, extended family, other members who are artists and who have traveled. And, and one in particular is a jazz musician who lived in Europe for many years. And he worked, yeah, he played all over Europe. And he started in Baltimore because my father's uncle, my great uncle, opened a jazz club in Baltimore. And that's how he got it start. Wow. So music and dance has been, I mean, because your niece is a dancer. Yeah, she's really, she's turn, she's turning in, well, she's already great, but I mean, she's really doing it. And that, I will tell you this, like that inspired me to actually continue and even step up my game in a different way, because then it gave me confirmation like, hey, wait, this is really God-given, DNA family-driven stuff. Dave, you're not crazy. <laughs> you're not you're not nuts. Because I was the only one doing what I was doing. Mike Davis kind of, but he, I think, inspired me and vice versa, right? Like Mike Davis was a guy who was also in our high school and he was a very talented guy, very strong and really into fitness. Um, he was a gymnast but, too. And he's a personal trainer now, I think. He's a personal trainer. 
So part of what he ended up doing, we've done similar work. Like I understand 100% what he's doing. I knew back then in high school and in junior high school what he was up to because it was similar, right? Like he would have guys, he was training people in his house on Church Street in this eighth grade or ninth grade. People were going, young guys were going over there and he was training them in his house. Wow. Did right. you know Lenya's a power lifter, just so you know? So Lenya's Len- also Len- an athlete. Lenya, you and I can talk, right? Because um, <laughs> it's, even though I don't power lift, there are elements of what you do that I understand 100%. Discipline. Right well, I, look, I understand. I understand. Hey, look, this, I have a new job, and I've been getting to work at 8.30, which means I, have to, I can get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Now, that doesn't happen... That didn't happen on a regular basis, but like when I'm working and I'm in my thing and doing my thing, I have no problems doing it. And yeah. so people are calculating, how early is he getting up if he's here at 8 o'clock or he's here at 8.30? And I'm just like, hey, look, it is what it is. And I don't apologize for it at all because I see it in line with sort of an athletic. Um, I can, it's another way that I can be athletic, even though I haven't really hit the gym yet. Hey everybody, David's phone died mid-conversation and when we hopped back on Zoom to continue, our conversation just took off in another direction. And so that great conversation will be dropped next Wednesday. Please listen in. You started a Facebook group for us. How's it going? Actually, it's going super well. We really want to engage with our listeners and I think we're doing an okay job. It would be great if our listeners shared us more often. All right, like the thing is for me, what I would love about the Facebook group, and I'm so grateful you really took on the onus of doing that work for us, is having people post like their questions or their suggestions for topics. But even if there's a listener out there who's having something happen in their lives and they want advice or they even just want to come on the show and talk about it, we're open to all those things because we're really looking to expand the conversation. Yeah, we really want to spread the word. And so definitely, if anybody has any advice, I think that the Facebook group, and then I also started the Instagram. And then for everybody who's listening, it's very easy to share the episodes with people uh, because that's how we expand our listener base. And, and we'd be very grateful for that. Definitely spread the word and also rate and review us if you can wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you tune in every Wednesday because that's when we drop our new episodes. All right, Lenya, I go have a good Sunday. Yes, you too. It's Formula One Sunday. All right. Talk to you later. Find us at womenbridgingthegap.com and check out our show notes below for other ways to talk with us. Mm